Welcome to Andrea's and John's picks of Ingredient Insiders. These are favorite episodes from the Ingredient Insiders archive. Today, we're taking you back to our very first ever episode from July of 2021 with Chef Ivan Orkin talking all about ramen noodles. Andrew, what is it about this episode that you love? It's the first one. I mean, how could you not love it? It was so exciting. All that, all those hours of preparation and talking about this podcast and then to finally be in studio and record it um, was just amazing. And I, I mean, I can only speak for me, but I was super nervous and Ivan made it so easy. He's such a professional. Um, you could tell it was definitely not his first podcast. Um, and at the end, he cooked us lunch. And uh, that was my favorite part for sure. Yeah, this is such a great episode to have a real legend in the world of noodle making and um, someone who's just so passionate about what he does. Enjoy this bonus episode with Ivan Orkin and Sun Noodle. Welcome to Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. So here we are, Andrea. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. Our COVID baby. Our podcast came to life. There's a lot of, a lot of, crappy things happened during the pandemic obviously some of them just too horrible even to mention and, and, and think about but one of the things that you know I think you and I can agree on is that it gave us time to to think and and talk about everything that's gone on over the last few years in the food industry here we are with a great opportunity to talk to some of our favorite chefs in the industry to talk to food makers from around the world that are making these great artisanal products and and sharing it with the the people that are listening throughout covid we would get on the phone for hours and talk about food and how restaurants are going to come back and would you go out to eat right now and you know how can we support our restaurants it's kind of how we started to, to think about this podcast let's talk about the comeback that's happening right now we are well over a year since covid started um, we have a vaccine that seems to be working well and has people out and about and and back in the streets of the big cities of the united states it's been brutally hard on the food industry. Yeah. The restaurants, I still don't know how how they they've been able to to overcome what's what's happened in the in the past 15 months. Yeah, they I think everyone's had to do the pandemic pivot. It was hard enough before the pandemic for yeah. a restaurant to survive. However, I am just amazed by what's going on. Restaurants are opening left and right. Last week, uh, I had the pleasure of going to Andrew Carmelini's brand new restaurant called Carne Mare down at New York City's South Street Seaport. Huge project and really exciting. So I'm excited for him. And um, I think you're seeing this as well in New York. Yeah, absolutely. I had the opportunity to visit Chef Adam at Great Jones Distillery. It's going to be the first distillery since Prohibition opening in Manhattan. You know, like so many other restaurateurs in Manhattan, I live in Manhattan. And to see what it looked like a year ago to see it now. Yeah. It's just incredible. Yeah. Daniel Ballou just opened Le Pavilion, uh, you know, maybe the biggest, grandest opening in New York City in several years. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful to see that the restaurants are coming back and that, uh, you know, the vibrant city of New York. And it's not just New York. It's, you know, I look at uh, Los Angeles. Nancy Silverton just opened up a restaurant in the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel called The Barish. Uh, she also has a restaurant opening soon in London, uh, another one in Cabo San Lucas. Yeah, I think it's given a lot of restaurateurs time to think, uh, time to take a step back and 
you know, decide what their next steps are. The restaurant industry is forever evolving. Another place I think of is Chicago. Uh, you've got Chef Doug Saltis and his wife, Shang, who opened Andros Taverna, and they are killing it. I mean, they are super busy. And one of the things that, you know, the, the restaurateurs learned during COVID is they needed to change a little bit, some of them, how they operate. And so Chef Doug's restaurant, they made it really pared down and efficient. They pared down their yeah. menus. They pared down their staff. They wanted to make it COVID proof. Mm-hmm. They wanted to to be able to do a lot of takeout offerings if needed. And not all foods travel well. That's right. So I think that was a huge triumph for chefs to try and figure out how, you know, I'm so used to making these dishes, which probably don't travel well. Right. How, what, what am I going to make to stay alive? Yeah. And you can talk about Miami too. I mean, Florida in general, booming. I think the, the business there was stronger during the year of 2020 than it was in 2019. So you had a Carbone opening, which again was one of the hottest openings of the year. It's just a good feeling to be out and about. Yeah. I manage a, uh, our largest sales team for the Chef's Warehouse in New York City. And I think this entire time, what we've been trying to do is to for our reps to really be supporting the chefs, our chefs the entire time. So from the beginning, we never closed. We were, con- we, you know, we, we still offered five day a week delivery in the city. Um, and we have such a wide variety of products. Um, if there was a supplier that couldn't supply them, we wanted to be there for them. And I think that was the message throughout the pandemic was the chef's warehouse is here for you. And to watch it now is just incredible. The reps are energized. Uh, I think it's strengthened our partnerships with a lot of our customers because we were there, because we never let them down. Yeah, we made it a very important uh, thing to stay close to them. Um, As much as we were having a hard time during the pandemic, they were having an extremely hard time as well. And, you know, it was kind of a thing where together we would get through this. Um, you know, I'm very lucky in that, you know, my position involves traveling and meeting with the, you know, the artisan food makers um, of some of the greatest products on the planet and then bringing them back to the United States to share with chefs. And it's something where, yes, it's, it's, it's a selling job and I'm in sales, but I never felt like a salesperson per se, because what I was doing was really just taking these ingredients bringing them to people who I considered my friends and saying, hey, you know what? Taste this. What do you think of this? If they loved it, great. They they appreciate it. And, and you know, some of our best product lines have come as a result of that. Yeah. I think of the chef we have on today's episode, Ivan Orkin. Couldn't be more talented. You talk about a New Yorker who is a self-admitted Japanophile. He loves everything about Japanese culture something that, you know, since he was a teenager, really felt this affinity for Japan and took his passion all the way to the point where he's probably the greatest ramen chef in North America. Yeah, we'll also be talking to Ken from Sun Noodles. His father started the company. He is now probably, I would say, the most popular noodle maker. Bar none. I mean, they, the, his family was way ahead of the curve. You know, ramen's become quite popular in the last 15 years. I think they were making ramen noodles starting in Hawaii in in the 1980s when the only thing that you and I had ever heard of probably was cup of soup or cup cup of noodles and and that, you know, the freeze dried ramen packages that were 10 for a dollar that I used to eat in my college dorm room. Just lots of good stuff here with this podcast. We're excited. So 
no coincidence, when we have Ivan on today's program, we will be talking about noodles. I am uh, completely honored and excited. Andrea, today we have truly a legend, a wonderful person, and one of our wonderful clients, too, here with us today, Ivan Orkin. Thank you for being here with us today. Yeah. A ramen legend. Um, Well, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, you're a legend. Uh, Speaking of which, last night I watched, again, it's probably the fifth or sixth time I've watched it, Chef's Table. It's unbelievable. In fact, if you haven't watched Chef's Table, it's season three, episode four. When we're done with this, turn on your Netflix. I rewatched it. Uh, a couple weeks ago because I've been spending a lot of time in the restaurant and talking to a lot of guests and they all mention it. I made it, but I couldn't remember everything. So I, uh, I watched it again. We brought you here today to talk about noodles. Awesome. I can, all I do is seem to think about noodles. Uh, I eat them a lot. Um, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of all noodles. You know, I do, uh, I, I love ramen because I was in Tokyo, you know, looking for something to do and obsessed with ramen at the same time. You know, I lived in uh, Tokyo in the 80s, came back to the United States, became a cook. And over the 13 years or so that I was not in Japan, the one thing you couldn't really eat was ramen. There was everything else. You, there were sake bars. There were there was pretty good ramen, uh, sushi bars. Um, there was even izakaya, you know, you could go to the markets and, and try things from Japan. But the one thing that wasn't available was ramen. And so I, I just craved ramen for years and years and years. So when we moved back, serendipitously, it was the uh, uh, the beginning of the ramen boom, which those of you who don't really realize it, who think that ramen is just something that was always happening, it really wasn't. You know, it, it, I think in the 19th, it's from China from many, many years ago. In the 50s, it started to kind of become its own real thing. But it wasn't until the turn of the of this century with the advent of the Internet and people being able to see what was happening all around them, see the different shops, see the different styles that people started getting interested. More importantly, that every type of person started eating ramen. So until that time, ramen was really a, a food for guys, um, a blue-collar food. Uh, a lot of the shops are pretty down and dirty meaning you wouldn't find a nice-dressed woman in there. You really wouldn't find families in there. And that all changed around the time that I came back to Japan. And it was cool, because now ramen is this, it's a whole different thing. It's become established. It's popular around the world. When I started ramen and I would be interviewed and I would describe ramen as a cuisine, the the interviewer would audibly laugh in my face that it's, he would say it's not a cuisine. And I would say, well, I mean, then what is it? You know, you don't want to call it a cuisine. Um, but there's a lot of things that goes into making ramen. And now you have really good chefs making ramen, and the Michelin stars are, are bouncing around for ramen. What I find so fascinating is you have your culinary chops. You worked with Bobby Flay. You worked for Andre Soltner at Lutes. You, you went to the CIA. But what a ballsy move for a nice Jewish boy from New York to go to Japan and open up a ramen shop. I, someone once told me that there's more ramen shops in Japan than there are McDonald's around the world. 
And then here you are going into that environment. Just to set the record state, I didn't go to Japan to open a ramen shop, which I think a lot of people think like, you know, I've heard these all these crazy quotes. You, I went to Japan to study with the ramen masters who I don't know who they are or where they exist. I'm a Japanophile uh, turned, turned chef. The ramen was more of a, uh, a need to do something. I was hanging out at home, taking care of the family. My wife was working. We agreed, my wife and I, that I needed some kind of a project, but I, you know, I was in the middle of Japan and it was hard for me to figure out what it is I wanted to do. I mean, I, I spoke Japanese really well, but I didn't read and write that well. And so I wasn't going to really do a corporate job. And I interviewed for a couple of chef jobs that I didn't find particularly interesting. And the more we spoke, the more we decided I would open some kind of a business. At the moment, I was obsessed with ramen. I was eating it a lot. I was very, very curious about how, how it was all done. From a price point perspective, it was a relatively inexpensive business to start. But the funny part is that everybody seems to think it was this really difficult thing. And I, you know, I think opening the business part was. But I think opening a business anywhere, whether you're in New York or Barcelona or Berlin or wherever, you know, opening a business is scary. It almost always costs more money than you plan. Uh, you have setbacks you don't see coming. And so in that respect, I think it was stressful and difficult. Is the noodle the most important component in a bowl of ramen? Well, I would, I would say that the, the noodle and the broth. So here's my story about my noodle story. I started eating a lot of ramen. I came back to Tokyo. Um, I, I was helping my wife, and she was a, a freelance interior stylist for magazines and television shows, and she would have to go to prop shops, pick stuff up, and I would help her gather everything, and then she would set up for these photo shoots and these TV shoots, and I, I often assisted. Because I was so obsessed with ramen, we fig I figured out how to almost always find a ramen shop somewhere near one of these places we had to go to. And at this point, if it was a popular shop, there'd be a line... You know, they had think before they had the real internet on the iPhones, on the little clamshell phones, they had something called the Ramen Navi. Um, Navi meaning navigation. And you would open it up and you could type in, you know, the town you were going to and it would tell you what popular shops were nearby. So we lived on this thing called the Ramen Navi. And like I said, this is pre-iPhone. And so we would drive around, we would go do our business, and then we would drive off into the wilds in these tiny, narrow streets. And we would, you turn the corner and there would be 15 people lined up and we'd find a parking spot and we'd queue up with everybody else and we'd slurp a bowl of ramen. And this was long before ramen was like sexy around the world. This is just still kind of underground kind of stuff. And I often would sit there and I would be eating the ramen with, with my wife, and I would say, you know, the, the soup is so delicious, but the noodles are meh. I don't get it. And so we would always have this discussion about the noodles. And, uh, you know, a lot of ramen noodles uh, are very simply made. They're made with one kind of flour, usually a 10 or 11% uh, gluten content and, uh, and, and a good amount of egg. And so a lot of the noodles would have sort of this eggy flavor and not as much texture as I wanted. I would also really notice that the noodles would overcook very, very quickly. So you'd get your very hot bowl of noodles and, you know, a quarter of the way through eating it, they were starting to get very, very soft, which would make me very, very sad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, when it came time to uh, do this ramen business and I really decided I wanted to do it, um, I was playing around online, looking through Japanese websites, and I found uh, this thing called the World Ramen Expo. It was the first year or the second year they had ever done it, and I, I think I found it because I found a site that had this guy who made noodle-making machines. 
And so I said, you know, I told my wife about it. She said, yeah, we should definitely go. I got tickets. And when we were there, I sought out that booth. And I found the Yamato noodle um, manufacturing booth. Nowadays, the owner has become something of a guru, self-help kind of dude. But back then, he was on the ground working with everybody. We had a long talk, and he said, you know, we do this ramen class. It's seven days long. You should come. You'll know for sure if you want to make ramen after this class. At the time, there were no books in Japanese on how to make ramen. And if it was, it was all lies. Is it very secretive that very they don't secretive. want to give up their No one will tell recipe. you anything. Wow. Yeah. Even now, I mean, it's getting better. But whereas in the West, you know, if you remark to a chef how much you like something they make, they'll often tell you how they make it. In Japan, if you ask a, sh a ramen guy, you know, how do you make this, he gets very quiet. Is the, the ingredient list complicated? I mean, it's a few ingredients. And is it well, the it's process? very complicated. First is of it all, similar to pasta? Like the pasta machines, are they similar to the ramen noodle machines that you're talking about? Uh, no, because the ramen, so the ramen noodle does not have the water content of, of uh, you know, some pastas have all, you know, tons of egg yolks and uh, a lot of liquid and they form into a, a real dough. The, the ramen dough is much more feathery. It's basically you mix the water, the consui, which is the alkaline uh, powder and, uh, and uh, um, the, the, the flour, the, dough, the water and the alkaline into a hopper that has basically really big spikes and it kind of spins it and, and uh, agitates it. And then you dump all of that, that very feathery dough. It's not in, it doesn't form into a ball. It's basically a, a feathery dough that then you dump into another hopper and it pushes it through some very heavy uh, cylinders. And it's almost like a sheeter. Like high pressure. High pressure. It's like, it's like, it's like a sheeter you would use for laminated dough, mm -hmm. but it's different. It's, it's these very heavy uh, uh, cylinders that you push this feathery dough through, and it turns into these dense sheets. And then you fold them onto each other. You push them out again, which is sort of a kneading process. You do that several times until you get to the thickness that you want for your noodle, and then you, you change it. It goes through a different area of the machine, and it goes through cutters that then cuts the noodles into the, the shape and, and length you want. Does the cutter matter? Because I know in pasta making, you want the bronze dye. That seems to be the, the standard. Are there certain cutters that you use for ramen noodle making? Um, I, it depends on the machine. There were some really, you know, the Yamato machine is, nowadays it's become quite common to use that machine back in the day. I mean, it was definitely more expensive. It's a good machine, a really good machine. And, but they're much cheaper machines. So I suppose, depending on how cheap your machine is, you know, I mean, but my, I think the cutters are the cutters. But ramen's not porous. I mean, a lot of the, the Italian pasta makers will use the bronze dye because it, it has a rough edge that it leaves on the pasta. So the sauce can hold so on to the pasta. The sauce. Yeah. Ramen, right. totally different, right? It's a slicker kind of finish to it. Well, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's it, the texture you want, on your noodle to hold the soup, which is just as important as you want for pasta, is achieved through your recipe and not through your cutter. Let's talk about some other noodles, though. What, first of all, what is a noodle? You know, what, what, what defines a noodle? A flour, flour and is, water and a shake. spaghetti a noodle? Is, is all pasta a noodle? That's one of the things I always wonder about. And then, Soba noodles, udon noodles. What's, what are the differences between them, and how would I you mean, identify I, that? I would say anything that's, uh, I'd say water and flour mixed together in, in a shape that you can slurp into your mouth is a noodle. So, you know, maybe, 
you know, I don't know that I would call a farfali or you know a noodle or a, or or kete or a noodle. I agree. But I but I think if it's it's got to be noodly. It's got to be f- like a long cut. Do you think it's got to be wobbly? And I think the key word there was slurp, like yeah. slurpability. Yeah, you can't slurp an orchetti no. or a farfalle. No, but you no. but you can slurp spaghetti, although yeah. supposedly you're not supposed to. And even in my house now. When we eat spaghetti, I slurp and I always get in trouble and I get you know yelled that. And my wife tells me, we're eating spaghetti. You're not allowed to slurp spaghetti. If my Italian grandfather heard me call spaghetti a noodle, I would get smacked. Yeah. It was macaroni. That oh. was what he called it. Yeah. So. I eat a lot of noodles. I really do. I, I cook them at home a lot. I don't cook ramen at home as much because I never remember to bring ramen noodles home from work. And so, but I almost always have uh, udon, a dry udon in my pantry. I, uh, I have so many in my pantry. For those of you who are lucky enough to have an H-Mart nearby, they have a giant fresh noodle section. And I just, sometimes I just, I just grab something. I, I don't even care. I just grab, I, I had a flat noodle that I got for a while that was just sick. It was so, so delicious. And I've done all kinds of cool iterations of that. And noodles are great because you can put them in broth. You can do a maze men style, you know, saucy thing. You can even just uh, saute them in a little chili oil and then pile a, 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 a saute on top of it. And it's fun. I don't think people realize it's a great year-round food. I One of my favorite things is like the dipping noodles. Skamen, yeah. Skamen. You can have them chilled. Mm-hmm. You can dip them in a chilled broth. It's great when it's hot out. And of course, obviously, what could be better than a, a steaming bowl? of noodles when it's when it's freezing cold out but they're so versatile they're so delicious there's such an appeal to 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 noodles i mean no wonder there's a ramen craze well there's a ramen craze i think also because ramen is fun to eat it's it's messy and it's noisy and it's fattening and it's salty and i think it it hits all the but checks all the boxes of of the things that it's it's a bit of a guilty pleasure and uh, and then it's all in one bowl, so there's just there's nothing even you don't have to think about anything. It's just all right there in front of you, and you just keep eating until the bowl's empty. And so it, it just it really works. And I, I think, you know, junk food in general like that works, right? You know, barbecue works all over the world because it also it's really easy to understand. And once again, it it checks a lot of those boxes. And so I think that uh, I think ramen's here to stay. Got it. How many shapes of ramen are there at Chef's Warehouse? We carry five or six traditional ramen shapes right it's really more about the whether it's round uh, a round noodle or a flattish noodle and the the thickness or the or the width of the noodle one of the fun parts in back in the day when i ran my shop in tokyo is i had my own machine so i could just sit there in my laboratory and make make lots of different types of recipes and i could make them uh, flat i can make them round i can make them super thick at the restaurant right now we have three shapes they're all round but uh, they go from imp- impossibly thin to medium th- uh, thick to very, very, very thick. How do you make that choice when you're kind of a com- like pairing the noodle with the, the broth and the other ingredients? I mean, generally speaking, and not always, though, I serve a lighter, a lighter ramen. So I think a lighter, lighter ramen works really nice with a thin noodle. I also developed the thin noodle because when I did all my ramen research... It really pissed me off how long I was made to wait for a bowl of ramen when I was hungry. And I think ramen is the kind of food that you don't necessarily... I mean, if you're planning to go to some famous shop and you schlep out there, then, you know, you're, it doesn't matter how long you wait because the whole thing is about eating at this cool shop. But I think that's not the norm. And when you go for ramen, you go because you're really hungry. And so I hated the idea 
of being made to wait, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes for a bowl of ramen. So I decided to come up with a 40-second noodle that I could pump out. I mean, you know, my ramen, you know, I can serve a bowl of ramen in two and a half, three minutes. Love it. I yeah. don't like waiting for food. Never. Yeah. You add rye flour to your recipe. Right. Why? So when I was making my noodles, once again, this is the American guy who didn't grow up eating noodles. But as a chef and as a person with a very specific idea of what I like to eat, I didn't like the texture of the egg noodles. So my ramen noodle, the one I invented in Japan, was was a blend of, of high gluten, low gluten, and medium gluten flours so that the noodles wouldn't overcook uh, as quickly. And it really worked. And then I decided I wanted to have a little bit more of a, of a, of a wheat flavor. I wanted that natural, you know, I wanted you to know what you were eating. I feel like when you're eating noodles, you should feel like you're eating noodles. And sometimes I feel like when you're eating an eggy noodle, you don't get that, that flavor explosion. And once again, this is very personal, and I'm, I, I would never tell someone that they're doing it wrong, but it's my shop, so I could do whatever I want. And so I chose the rye because the rye is low gluten. It doesn't really interfere with the gluten of the, of the recipe, and uh, it had a really nice flavor. In Japan, I used whole wheat, and I used to uh, toast it in a pan all the time. And so it had this fantastic uh, toasted flavor, which we can't do at Sun Noodle because there's no way they can pull that off. So now Sun Noodle is, you've given them your secret recipe, and they're producing a custom noodle for Ivan Ramen. Yes, I met Ken, the son of the owner uh, in Hawaii, Ken Uki. Back in 2010, I did uh, the World of Flavor at Greystone in Napa Valley. And the theme, it was this event they do every year, and they, they choose a theme. And that year, the theme was Japanese food. And they invited some of the most famous chefs uh, from Japan. It was very humbling. It's like, you know, it's like sitting on the plane next to Elaine Ducasse and, and, and Elaine Passard and whatever. It was insane. That, and they invited me as well to represent ramen, which was maybe one of my greatest crowning achievements. I love it. I said I'd only come if they used my flour to make the noodles. So we shipped my flour from Japan to L.A. And Sun Noodle, who had a factory there, still has a factory there, they made the noodles, and then Ken drove it up to Napa Valley. He was just out of college, so he was very young. He's so nice. He just ended up helping me with everything because I came alone. I had no assistance. I had no one helping me, and Ken ended up helping me, and we, and we stayed friends. And so when I moved to New York to start this business, I, I, I knew because I was, I've been in the restaurant business so long that trying to make noodles and run a restaurant would just be a cluster and I didn't want to deal with it, and with the health department and flour everywhere, and I just I couldn't imagine if it would work or not. So, you know, I knew that I had the resource of Sun Noodle. I trusted them because they made my noodle perfectly when I asked and, and everything. So uh, for six months, we worked together, you know. They, they helped with their expertise. They helped me source flowers. We made many, many iterations until we got it right, and, uh, and they make my noodles. And it's great because... Whatever I need to do, they're always there with noodles, and I don't have to, you know, uh, could you imagine right now if I, I had to make my own noodles? It would just be miserable. Yeah. We're in a little bit of a labor crisis, so I can't even imagine. Sun noodles are amazing. I, you know, I, I've been impressed with, with everything I've ever tasted that they produce. Um, I would not hesitate to send every one of our listeners to Ivan Ramen. You have to go. On Clinton Street in Manhattan. New York is back. Come have some noodles. It's amazing. You might even see Ivan there behind the counter. 
if you're lucky. Yeah. Turning out some noodles. Yeah. Hanging out with everybody. Uh, come check it out. 25 Clinton Street. Uh, check out my Instagram at Ramen Junkie, uh, which is also uh, basically I anywhere I eat or anything I do, I kind of document it. And, uh, um, and come on down and have a ball. Amazing. Thanks Thank again you. for joining us. We are yeah. so honored. We're humbled. And this was a great talk about noodles. Thank awesome. you. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Sun Noodle, a great partner of the Chef's Warehouse. I think a lot of the listeners would be surprised to know that virtually all of the great ramen shops in the United States are using a noodle that they purchase, and probably from Sun, but very few ramen shops are making their own noodles. And to me, you know, I think it's an incredible thing. The quality of the product is exceptional across the board. And I've also been really amazed. You know, this is a product line, Sun Noodles, that we brought on probably about five or six years ago. And the and the popularity of it has soared for our client base. We're getting calls from chefs just because they want to buy Sun Noodle. We love having Sun as part of the portfolio. Sun Noodles is pretty much the noodle supplier to the stars. I mean, I can't think of any great ramen chef in the United States that doesn't use sun yeah. at this point. Yeah, well, I, I think we're, we're we're really like honored and proud. I, I we strive to serve, you know, some of the most talented chefs, um, and we've been fortunate to to have those opportunities. And obviously, with Ivan, um, it's it's helped us kind of get our our name out there when when he talks about our product. But ever since the beginning, when my father started the company forty years ago, it was always about. Now crafting a noodle that would better enhance the, the diner's experience. And that's always uh, playing a part in, in that chef's vision. Your dad had tremendous foresight. I mean, how did he, did he have any idea that ramen would be this cultural phenomenon in the United States in the, you know, the two thousands, you know, I think of my earliest ramen experience had to be a cup of noodles. Yeah. Which is that even considered ramen? I mean, instant ramen. And, and I think the convenience is definitely a ramen. I think it's, it's for most, people outside of Japan, maybe their first introduction to ramen. And so it, it's it's a pivotal part. For my father, though, uh, my grandfather was actually a, a noodle manufacturing kind of company in Japan. And so my father kind of grew up around just noodle making. And, you know, when he went to Hawaii to start his business, we, we tend to think that it was a real blessing because had he stayed in Japan, um, in Tochigi, which is a prefecture an hour north of Tokyo, just like any other cuisine, he would have probably just focused on that style of ramen. But as we all know, there's a variety of ramen throughout Japan. So being in Hawaii, when you had all these ramen shops from all over Japan wanting to open, he would have to study, okay, how do you make the noodle from you know, Hokkaido or Sapporo, Japan? How do you make a noodle that fits very well for a Southern Kyushu tonkotsu? So it's always kind of been in his DNA to to find the craft. You know, I, I don't think he had imagined that outside of Hawaii, he would have grown the business. But you know, it was that one customer from Hawaii that wanted to open in California and asked, hey, can you, you know, send your noodles to California? That led to then opening a factory. That led then to like really opening our distribution. So how many different types of ramen noodles does Sun Noodle make? Like just in noodles in general, it's, it's over 200 um, with all three factories kind of together. Outside of just ramen noodles, you know, we have different types of noodles of like udon and, and wheat based yakisoba styles. But just in ramen, um, I think it's like a little over 200. 200 types of ramen noodles. That's, That's a correct. lot of noodles. That is a lot of noodles. And what's the difference yeah. when you say ramen noodles versus udon or a soba noodle? The biggest 
difference, I, I think, with, with all of it is, I mean, they're all wheat-based noodles. In ramen, what, what makes a ramen noodle considered a ramen noodle is you have to have what we call kansi as an ingredient. And kansi is essentially um, sodium carbonate and potassium carbonate. And it's an alkaline salt. And that's really blended in the water and the liquid. And you introduce that to your wheat flour. So when you have that composition, it's considered a ramen noodle. At Chef's Warehouse, I think we have about six, maybe seven different types of ramen noodles. So it really, it's amazing that there's this great variety that you're offering. What, you know, is it just chefs tinkering with recipes and you're customizing it um, to get to that number and... You know, or is there some basics when it comes to ramen? Are there five or six kind of must-have noodles? Our, our philosophy is always, you know, focusing on the ingredients, which is, for us, the biggest part is wheat flour. And we're, we're always searching for flavorful wheat flour throughout the world, basically. And, and that second step is, you know, how fine um, the millers and us can mill the flour. That's really one. Um, and as, as you all know, there's a variety of wheat flours within just wheat flours protein levels, ash contents. And so that's a good start for us, whether it's it's craft a better noodle for the chef is, is you know, is it texture? Is it cook time? Is it aroma? Is it you know, appearance? Is it weight? I think with all types of opportunities with chefs that we work with, it results in a lot of noodles that um, could have different, again, textures, flavor profiles. But at the end of the day, I think the reason why there's so many varieties for us is that each chef has a strong image of, of what they want to serve to their guests. And that could be from what their broth is and how to match it with the broth. That's really important for us. In particular to Ivan's noodles, it, it's, it was a very specific process, um, one that we enjoy just because Ivan knows so much about noodle making. With Chef's Warehouse, you know, we, we focus, I think we call it the core five. And these are like the five fundamental styles of ramen. Your traditional, you know, shoyu style ramen, your miso, uh, your tonkotsu, the mazumen, the broth is mazumen, and then the tsukemen, which is a dipping noodle. And we thought that was a great start to introduce really a, a variety of, of types of products. Are there any types of trends that you see coming in terms of noodle making? Any different types of noodles that you've been, you know, getting requests for or kind of what's on the horizon you think for ramen? Our insight to to many of the things that we try to develop or, or better serve um, our customers and, and that's chefs and, and consumers is that because we are majority food service, but we have a little bit of kind of forward-facing consumer branding in, in markets, we realize that many home cooks today or, or chefs are not asking for us to provide them for a noodle that fits in, call it what they would find in Japan. And I would say, you know, 10 years ago when I moved here, it a lot of the requests is, what do you find in Tokyo? What do you find in Japan? Because I want to bring that here. Today, I think like most chefs are saying, how can I be more creative? How can I be more local? And what that means for us is, I think, sourcing more, I think, local grains. And I think we call it kind of micrograins. You know, can we find grains here that uh, we can then formulate into a ramen noodle. I think that was one important kind of ask from chefs. Ramen noodles, I think, have a bad image because probably the instant um, ramen, the the bricks, kind of what you survive on. And so there's been a lot of requests from our fans and our customers is how can we speak better about the noodle that is not always going to be in broth. And so one that we're really focused on today is, is a ramen noodle that fundamentally some really good aspects on, call it fiber, uh, protein. We've been working hard uh, on developing some of those noodles. You know, I was lucky enough to visit the Sun Noodle Factory in New Jersey about three years ago, Andrea, and 
it, it's an amazing place to see. It's an, it's a wonderful artisanal production. But you know what the best part of all is? What? At the end of my tour, they have a ramen bar set up. Whoa. And they fed me ramen for about an hour and a half, two hours. I got to try every, I didn't try all 200, but let me tell you, I tried a lot of ramen that day. It was unbelievable. Well, Ken, I cannot tell you how appreciative we are of Sun Noodles and everything that your family's done. And, you know, the Chef's Warehouse is a better company today because of your product. Of course. Thank you for the opportunity, guys. Subscribe now to Ingredient Insiders and join us on a culinary journey. Available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.